the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. This evening, we are continuing our summer teaching series entitled Prison Prayers. It's a series focusing on four of the Apostle Paul's prayers taken from three of his New Testament letters, all of which were penned whilst he was being held under house arrest in Rome. But before we look in detail at the few verses that we have in front of us for this evening, let's take a moment to place our reading into the context of the wider story of the New Testament. As I've already mentioned, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, who we know from reading the New Testament was instrumental in helping to establish several churches during the years following Christ's death and resurrection. However, that said, the church in Colossae, to whom this letter was written, wasn't one of those churches, since Paul never visited the city. Instead, the establishing of this particular Christian community was the work of two other converts to the faith, Epaphras and Philemon, both of whom had been convinced of the message of the good news of God after hearing Paul speak in Ephesus. So, where was Colossae? Well, the town was located about 80 miles inland from the city of Ephesus, in the Lycus River Valley, in what today is part of western Turkey. At one time, Colossae was a very influential regional trading post, but by AD 60, when this letter was written, its importance was was beginning to wane. In fact, it's quite likely that Colossae would never have got a mention in the New Testament if it wasn't for this letter. So what were the circumstances that led up to Paul writing to the church in Colossae? Well, the answer appears to be that Epaphras had asked for Paul's advice about how best to deal with a particular problem, and this letter forms part of Paul's response. The issue was that of false teaching, ideas and practices that veered away from the truth of the gospel as spoken about by the apostles. Members of the church were being encouraged by some who had recently joined them to reevaluate their newfound faith in Christ in the light of supposed important new revelations that only they knew about. This group, the Gnostics, whose name derives from the Greek word gnosis, which translates to know, were claiming that they had additional knowledge about God, knowledge only they had access to. And whilst we're not exactly sure what was being taught at Colossae, we do get a few hints within the letter. The substance of the heresy appears to have been a mix of Gnostic teachings, which insisted that everything physical or created was inherently evil and that only the spirit was good, alongside a a combination of Eastern philosophy and Jewish legalism. It was a heady mix, given the culture of Colossae, which itself was heavily influenced by a local tradition that venerated the archangel Michael as a supposed protector of the city. It was the archangel that local folklore cited as having saved the city from destruction during a huge flood, and who imparted healing properties to a spring of water from which pilgrims would drink, seeking help to relieve all kinds of illnesses. And so it is that into this mix of culture and religion and local folklore that Paul writes to reinforce the sufficiency of knowing Jesus Christ as the only requisite for faith. The danger facing the Christians in Colossae was that their faith would become a mishmash of inconsistencies, that the truth of God would be devalued and that the person and work of Christ undermined. So Paul's theme, right from the start, is one of confidence in Jesus Christ. Paul starts out by affirming his God-given authority. He describes himself right at the beginning of his letter in verse 1. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother. Paul is careful from the outset to point out that he's not writing to them as an individual sharing his opinion, but he writes as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And that's a striking introduction, especially to our modern ears, since we live in a society that prefers viewpoints or alternative perspectives or individual experience to take precedence over any kind of truth-stating authority. Yet Paul is unapologetically clear, since there is a necessity to distinguish true from false, to identify those who teach fact from those who peddle lies. Paul's own life story, of course, was one of the evidence of the power of God's truth and of the transformation that comes through belief and faith. Paul's confidence in greeting his fellow Christians comes from the certain knowledge that he has been commissioned by God to tell others about what God had done for them in sending Christ Jesus into the world. Paul then speaks about those to whom he's writing. Verse 2, he names them as holy and faithful. Now, in spite of the fact that here was a group of Christians in serious danger of being misled, Paul sends a greeting that teaches a confident truth. From God's standpoint, the church in Colossae had been set apart for God's service. That's what holiness means. And that's not to say that they had attained a level of saintliness, but it was simply a reassurance from Paul that as followers of Jesus Christ, they were God's people. In addition, he calls them faithful even if they aren't as secure in their understanding of the truth of God as perhaps Paul would wish them to be. But Paul starts his letter from this place of reassurance and truth. So now that we've set the scene for the prayer, let's just consider the verses that we're going to look at together from verse 9 to verse 12 of Colossians chapter 1. This is what we read. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people, in the kingdom of light. Now there has been much written about Paul's so-called prison prayers since they're remarkable, given Paul's own situation, of course, that of being under house arrest in Rome. Each of the four prayers that we are considering this series are consistent in that Paul prays for others and not for himself. They're also consistent in that the requests are always centred on spiritual blessings and not on material or physical concerns. All that Paul knows about this group of Christians is what he'd learned from Epaphras. And knowing that the church is under threat, his prayer directly focuses on the need to have resilient faith. That's why we've called this particular talk um, Enduring Faith. So firstly, he prays that his brothers and sisters in Christ will be filled with knowledge, wisdom and understanding. Look again at you, Will, at the second part of verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. The Gnostic teachers were claiming that only they were in the know. But Paul refutes their assertions by stating that knowledge, wisdom and understanding come only from God through the work of the Spirit within a Christian's life. And Paul's choice of language in the original Greek is clearly deliberate. Instead of using the word gnosis for knowledge, he chooses epignosis which translates as 
full knowledge. It's as if Paul is saying, look, you don't need anything new. You already understand God's grace. You simply need to grow in the experience that you have. You need to appreciate its fullness. And we shouldn't get too hung up either about the phrase, the knowledge of his will. Since this isn't referring to us knowing every specific detail of God's plan for our lives. But instead, Paul's prayer is that we, along with those in Colossae, would get to appreciate what God has done for us through Christ. And then having this ever-increasing awareness of Christ's work on the cross and what it achieved, we then have something in our lives that is significant influence on our decision-making. God's will for our lives is linked with our discipleship. As we allow the good news of God to permeate every area of our lives, we start to discover that our head, our heart and our hands all align with God's will. So there's no mystical insight required, which is exactly, of course, what the Gnostics were trying to say was necessary. We simply need to enjoy the certain knowledge of God's salvation as revealed in Christ, to live it out day by day through sharing the story and living the life in the places where God has placed us on our front line. And by way of emphasis, Paul goes on to pray for four aspects of our daily discipleship in the remaining three verses of his prayer. Our walk, as Paul describes it, is to be worthy, knowledgeable, powerful and thankful. Firstly, then, he talks about a worthy walk. Now, in Hebrew vocabulary, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the word walk is used symbolically to refer to a person's conduct, the day-to-day outworking of their faith. And it's a term that the New Testament writers continue to expand upon. And in Jewish understanding, knowledge and conduct were inseparable. From their perspective, a person did not fully know something until they'd experienced it. And that idea finds full expression within the Christian faith, since knowing Christ inevitably leads to action. Our faith finds full expression only when our head, our heart and our hands are fully engaged. A life worthy of the Lord is a life where we are committed both individually and corporately to walk the talk. The 14th century Carmelite nun, St. Teresa of Avila, expressed this idea well in her writings. She comments that, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. And then Paul goes on to say that such a life leads to spiritual results. Look again at the close of verse 10. Paul's prayer for those in Colossae is that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Now we know, of course, from other passages in the New Testament that we aren't saved through anything we have done ourselves. It's not our own efforts that bring us into relationship with God. Instead, we have been drawn into relationship through God's intervention, his grace. But that's not the fruit of the Spirit's work in and through our lives. Good works, as Paul describes them, should be the natural outworking of lives that are connected to God. That set-apartness, that holiness, which God calls us and the believers in Colossae to embrace. Well, all of that leads to growth and fruit. The writer and theologian J.I. Packer puts it like this. Holiness is a matter of both action and motivation. 
conduct and character, divine grace and human effort, obedience and creativity, submission and initiative, consecration to God and commitment to other people. It's a matter of seeking to imitate Jesus' way of behaving, of taking God's side against wrongdoing in our own lives, and of a single-minded, wholehearted, free and glad concentration on the business of pleasing God. And this activity of fruit-bearing is both a present and continuous one. Paul's choice of tense leads to that interpretation. Paul Paul prays that fruit-bearing would be a constant, ongoing reality for the church in Colossae. But notice that it's not only a worthy walk. He also talks about a knowledgeable walk. And Paul returns to this theme of knowledge again at the close of verse 10. Knowledge is something that Paul has already prayed for. So why does he mention it again? Well, in part, I think the answer lies in the fact that Paul wishes to emphasize again the dynamic connection between knowledge and conduct. There is a circular nature, says Paul, to our discipleship. The more we get to know Christ the more we serve him. The more we serve him, the more we get to know Christ. And so it goes on and on. Jesus in John chapter 7 reveals something similar. When talking to the Jewish leaders, he says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. But thirdly, also, we discover something of a powerful walk. Look again at verse 11 being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Once again, Paul employs the present and continuous tense, this time in relation to strengthening power. Notice that the focus for this power is first and foremost for endurance. The original word in the Greek that we have translated as endurance is the same word that would be used to describe a battalion of soldiers holding their position in a battle. So it's a call to stand firm, to be resilient. Towards the close of the political career of Sir Winston Churchill, as he was by then, was invited to Harrow School, the school he attended as a young man. The invitation included an opportunity, of course, to speak at the final assembly for those students who were leaving the school. Now you can imagine, I'm sure, the anticipation on the faces of those in attendance. The room fell silent as the great man stood at the rostrum prepared to speak. Despite their brevity, I'm sure no one present in the room forgot the words that Churchill spoke to them. He said this, young men, never give up, never give up, never give up, never, never, never. And with that, he sat down to rapturous applause. To endurance, then, Paul adds patience, or as the Greek would literally say, long-suffering. And whilst endurance focuses on difficult situations, I think long-suffering focuses on difficult people. Paul, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, expresses something of what it has meant for him to experience endurance and patience. Listen to what he has to write. Second letter to the book of Corinthians, uh, from chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love. But, says Paul, this isn't a power gained through mystical insight, or any of the ways that we might most readily associate with the gaining of power. 
You see, Paul is a realist. He knows that circumstances and people can be difficult. He knows what the Christian experience is like day by day. He has lived it. But he also knows their strengths, and he knows where their strengths can be found. It's through the indwelling power of the Spirit. And then finally, Paul talks about a thankful walk. Our lives, says Paul, are to be characterized by thankfulness. And once again, the tense of the grammar is important, since we share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. That is stated as a present reality. And the way we share in the inheritance as a daily reality is to live a life worthy of the Lord, to know his presence in our lives, to work it out in incarnational ways as we walk with Christ. In the way, of course, that Teresa of Avila so helpfully describes. Let me finish with a, a few words from the Old Testament from Joshua chapter 1. At the moment of succession, when Joshua took over the role of leading God's people following the death of Moses, God gave Joshua these words of assurance. Words that I think um, Paul would most certainly echo. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I pray that that may be our prayer as well. That we may recognize something of the power that God gives us. That we may be strong and courageous. We may be those who are willing to walk in a worthy way, in a knowledgeable way, in a powerful way, in a thankful way, as we continue in our lives, as we continue to share the story and live the life for God.